Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is Fine Woodworking's executive art director, Mike Begovich. What's up, man? Plus, reporting from the showroom floor at the 2014 International Woodworking Fair, straight from Atlanta, Georgia, ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Sultan of Snark, the Colonel of Crass, the one and only Dr. <laughs> Matt Kenny. I give him to you, well, I'll give him to you later because he's not here now because we're going to call him, um, and Mike and I are flying solo in a different studio. So if the sound sounds different, it's because we're in Studio B at uh, Taunton Studios, which don't exist. (laughs) Um, Anyhow, uh, as always, uh, spread the word about this podcast to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a five-star rating. You can even stop by our iHeartRadio page. Uh, So, today's segue... Um, I got a very angry email, Mike, concerning our last podcast and my, um, my faux pas. Um, so people might recall finding out that in a bit of um, unintended ignorance, uh, I had no idea that typical fluorescent bulbs were a no-no for disposal through regular garbage. I also mentioned my habit of putting my bag of weeds, I weed my home regularly, hidden in the center of a trash bag after finding out that my trash company was going to start doubling its charges for any yard waste being disposed of, no matter how small. So I got dinged for it, and and boy, did I get dinged. Uh, Brian. And rightly so, I should add. How dare you, sir. Uh, Brian wrote in to say, you guys should be ashamed that you spent a large portion of your show discussing the various ways to screw over your trash company instead of responsibly recycling or composting your shop waste. By screwing over your trash service, you are inevitably causing the rates for the rest of us to go up to compensate for your irresponsibility, not to mention the negative impact on the environment. What's next? Are you guys going to recommend that people take their old finishes and pour them directly into the nearest river just to save a buck or a few minutes of their time? So, hold on, Brian. Back the truck up. Number one. Um, I have never dumped paint in any kind of anything. In fact, I get this stuff at Home Depot. It's a powder that hardens paint so that then you can throw it out. Number two, I did not know that fluorescent bulbs were hazardous. I just never knew that. So that's just ignorance. Now I know. Somebody on the podcast knew they were hazardous. Well, I found out in the course of our chatting, yeah. I mentioned that during the podcast Yes, and was given no credence. So I don't want to be lumped into these complaints. Oh, yeah, complaints. no, no, no. Mike should not be lumped into these complaints. Yes. No, it's all me all the time. And Asa. Um, Asa was r- ranting on about where did he go to the local grocery store dumpster and was like firing his fluorescent <laughs> tubes into the grocery store dumpster. I think so. he was having a little fun. I think this was and, pretty much you know. all on Asa. But... I actually did go on Google after that podcast, yes. and I Googled it, and I looked it up, and I did find out that there are trace amounts of mercury in fluorescent bulbs, but I had never known that yes. before. Now, Brian, to go further, you're talking to a guy who recently changed all the thermostats in his house. They were all like 50 years old, and what I found, and this was before the aforementioned podcast, was that they all had mercury switches, and what did Ed do? He took each one apart took out the mercury switch before throwing out the thermostat, and I'm waiting for my town's hazardous waste pickup to dispose of my mercury. So I'm not a bad guy. So you can actually dispose of that sort of thing in a town hazardous waste. I always thought that was just for, like, old bug spray and lacquer thinner and that kind of stuff. Uh, It's, well, truth be told, I have to go look at the list. I still have the whole, I have a piece of paper. They're doing it in, like, two weeks, and I have to look at the list and see if they'll take the mercury. But All right. um, My dad got rid of a whole bunch of mercury when they moved to Florida, and they 
they were able to give it to municipal waste. Um, but anyhow, um, yeah. So there you go. So don't stop your subscription to Fine Woodworking just because of me. Of Ed. If you want, you can blog your hearts to your heart's content about how much of a boob I am. But uh, it's not Mike's fault. <laughs> so um, let's get this show on the road. Uh, we got an email from a fellow named Jerry who wrote, I am very interested in taking woodwork on as a hobby, but where does one start? Do you first take lessons or do you start by getting tools? And so I thought that was a, just a good all-around topic of discussion. Yeah, great question. Um, I wouldn't phrase this as sort of a chicken or egg question. Um, I think it, it's, it's pretty clear. Um, unless you know what you're doing, um, you really don't know what tools to get in order to do it. So, um, you know, find a neighbor, find a grandpa, find a relative who woodworks and goof around in their shop, have them show you how to do some stuff or take a class. It could be just a weekend class at a local community college or someplace where, um, or even go, if you got the bucks and the time, go sign up for a week long class somewhere where you build a furniture project. You're in a shop which is fully equipped with both machinery and hand tools. And not only that, someone is going to show you the basically best practices um, on each tool and each machine and also give you a, a overall bigger context about how these tools interrelate with each other in order to do the job that you want to do. So I would say learn what you want to be doing, uh, learn how to use the tools and what tools to use in order to do what you want. And then getting the tools is really easy, except for being able to afford all the cool tools you'll want by that point. That and uh, learning how to uh, uh, maintain your tools. So meaning, um, when I first started working here, I had done a fair amount of timber frame carpentry. And I thought I understood what uh, this has been said a million times, but uh -huh. I thought I understood what sharp was. Well, you knew what sharp was in relation to framing. timber framing. Sure. <laughs> Which is not sharp well, for furniture making. Two different things. And um, I really thought I knew decent enough amount about, you know, and uh, when I started to try and use hand planes on furniture components, I found that I was just, my sharpening technique was woefully inadequate. Um and once I learned that, a whole heck of a lot of other stuff became infinitely easier. Yes. Um, but there's also other things like learning, um, you know, you, let's say you get a jointer and a planer. I mean, it's not the most simple thing to, you know, learning how to change the cutting, you know, the, the blades on the cutter heads on those machines. You've got to do, you've got to learn how to maintain stuff. Right. And uh, I got like the first year I was here, I feel like I was spoiled because we had a shop manager who was doing all that stuff. Sure. And um, I had to sort of take it up on myself to start reading in books. And I still ask questions about certain things from time to time um, regarding maintenance and whatnot. Um, but that's a whole other topic unto itself. Oh, that's why it's such a long journey. Like you said, you got to know what flat and square is. Okay, this is why a board needs to be flat and square. Cool. That's a whole lesson. Number two, here's how to get flat and square with a joiner and a planer. That's a whole journey. And then beyond that, okay, fine. Now you're going to get a joiner and planer. Here's how to maintain the tool in order to do what you know how to do with the tool. And that's sort of kind of step three of, I don't know, keeps on going. Gotcha. So, um, and I don't know where, uh, where Jerry's located. Um, 
But uh, I would imagine Jerry should email us as to where he's located because we have certain resources over here that we could uh, we could probably steer you in the right direction as to where to look for classes sure. in your neck of the woods. Sure. So, and if all else fails, uh, read a magazine or oh, a book. What magazine would you recommend? Um, there are really some really great magazines out there. Rough uh, Woodworking? Uh, fine Woodworking <laughs> is, is one of many that will get you up and started. Um, I'm trying to think of a book. Like if I was going to say, get a book. What about that? Uh, Ed is pointing is that, to a, is that a bit box much? set of a, a three-volume set by Tayfred. Tayfred teaches woodworking. Covers joinery, sharpening, veneering, finishing. Um, that might be a bit much it's, when you're starting. It's tough. It's a lot to digest. Yes. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there is a book out there where you can say, you know, A to Z, start to finish, basic concepts, machinery, hand tools, and from the basics to making a piece of furniture. That would be a good book. I would like to be able to have that book and say, okay, if nothing else, read this as a starting point. Maybe gotcha. it's out there. Might, might might be more than one book. You could also go to startwoodworking.com and look up the Getting Started in Woodworking uh, Season 3. There was a project on that Asa and I did on building a um, a walnut um, side table. Yes. It kind of covered a lot of basic stuff. Yes. Uh, in one, you know, eight-part series, however many parts it was. I don't remember, but... Uh, you know, I take it back, and I'm saying this in, in all sincerity... Um, that video series and the other things that you've done on Start Woodworking, even the um, the bookcase that was yeah, held I was getting started with season two, screws I think. and plugs. Yeah, um, you guys have done a really good job tackling the craft at the at the very basic level. Then a lot of times we just don't have the room or time to cover in the magazine. Yeah. you took it a step down and say, look, if you're really getting started, start here. Do that. Don't read a book. Um, go watch those videos. So which ones? The bookcase, the table. So there was season one where they built like a basic workbench. Workbench is good. And they yeah. did like a cutting board. They did some basic stuff. Season two was an, a white oak bookcase um, with uh, dados to hold the shelves and they were screwed and plugged. That's right. Um, and that's a nice, it's a nice piece of furniture. And then season three was the walnut side table that Asa and I did. Yes. Uh, and they're all, that actually, I think that's a really good idea. Go to startwoodworking.com and find getting started in woodworking. Well, that was a shameless plug. Totally shameless. Um, but I, I think it'll help Jerry. Yes. So, um, moving on to the next question, this comes from another Mike and he says, I'm hoping you can help me with a quandary I'm having. I've been given an out of tune craftsman six inch jointer, um, model number, yada, yada, yada. While my shop can really use a jointer, I find myself hesitant to spend the money to tune this up due to the fact that I perceive it to be more money and work than it's worth. Currently, I get by with a Rockwell Unisaw DeWalt DW734 planer, it's a good planer, and hand tools for jointing. While this works well for me, I'm a hobbyist with a young family and time is in high demand. I believe that having a reliable jointer could allow me to get through a few more projects in a year. Do you agree? Um, I'm close to having a core shop set up with what I consider tools that are good enough to be efficient at setting me up to make fine furniture. Do you think that tuning this joiner will result in a tool that is of a quality that you would have in one of your shops? If so, can you suggest steps that I might take and educational resources? My current plan would be to sharpen or replace the blades, possibly find a replacement cutter head. I would also change the belt. So we briefly, albeit, looked at some photos via Google uh, to just get an idea of what this thing looked like. Yes. Because he sent us the model number. Um, I think, Mike, you should hit this first. What's your gut tell you? It looked like a pretty 
decent quality cast iron, uh, sort of a, a benchtop style six inch joiner. You know, the beds weren't really, really long, but um, if that's working properly, that can do a lot of nice work for you. And you mentioned the time and money to get it up and running. I don't think it's so much money as, as time. And um, knowledge. Yeah, I mean, the first thing you want to do when you're looking at a joint or something like that, um, I would get a straight edge and in, in lay it across the in-feed and out-feed table. And if those tables were parallel, there, there wasn't any sag or dip, which that actually can be fixed, and it's not that big of a deal. You can shim the out-feed table. Um, if, you, if your tables are parallel, that's a really, really good start. Uh, from there, um, if the blades are old and rusted and pitted, just go buy a new set. That's not going to cost you a lot of money. And uh, the other thing you can do is you can pull the blades out and get them sharpened. So then let's say everything is in pretty good shape with the joiner. You got some new knives. You definitely want to learn how to install the knives. That can be a real pain in the butt. But it's, it's a worthwhile investment in setting up a joiner. No matter what joiner you get in the future, you're still going to have to learn the process of setting your, your, all of your blades to the same height um, and parallel. And a lot of ways to do it depending on the type of joiner. Uh, check out some articles on fine woodworking in the past, both on tuning up a joiner, which can help you with your beds if they're not parallel, and then also getting your, your joiner blades uh, tucked in there. Last thing I would do at this point is think about getting a replacement cutter head. Uh, you certainly can do that. Um, I would love to get a segmented cutter head for my 8-inch delta joiner. Um, I just haven't had the time or, or especially the money to actually do that. But um, I think this little guy is definitely worth spending a little bit of elbow grease on to see if you can't get it up and running. And you're right. If you do have a jointer, um, it, can, it can get some work done for you pretty quick. And a 6-inch joiner, and that's actually a pretty decent size. You can get them wider, but 6 inches is going to handle... You got it for free, too. I mean, that's fantastic. Right. Almost everything except for parts that are going into, say, a glued-up tabletop or something like that. Um, 6 inches is not bad. 8 is nice. 8 is nice, but 6 uh, is definitely worth getting it up and running. I, you know what I, I always equate it to? If you got it for free, 6 inches is great. If you're going to yes. spend money... I wouldn't necessarily spend money on a six inch because for a little bit more, I can probably get a used eight inch. Great point. Yeah. And that's more useful. But yeah. if it's free, heck yeah, yeah. Use the hell out of it. Right. Um, all right. So with that out of the way, um, Matt Kenny and our editor, Tom McKenna, are in Atlanta, Georgia at the International Woodworking Fair trying to figure out what types of new tools and machinery uh, are set to come out in the coming months. So I figure we get on the horn and uh, bring Matt on. Matt, what's going on in Hotlanta? Uh, not much, guys. Uh, we just uh, wrapping up our IWF uh, visit, and we've had a good couple of days cruising the hall, checking out the new tools and uh, various cocktail hours. The... What's that? And various cocktail hours. Oh yeah, definitely hitting up the cocktail hours. You know, you know me and McKenna. <laughs> so what's what's but, new? Yeah. So what's new? Well. Uh, there is, let's see, SawStop is introducing a sliding cross-cut table for their saws. It'll fit all three models of their saws, and uh, I think it has up to 48 inches of cross-cut capacity. Yeah. And uh, they, had, uh, they had one of them here at the show hooked up to a, I believe it was their midline table saw, cabinet saw. And uh, it looked really nice. And uh, 
when a model is available, we're going to get one into the shop and put it through the test and uh, see what see what uh, turns out. So it's interesting. That's probably the big thing of the show that we saw. Um, I think it's going to retail for a thousand dollars. So so what's there was the, also oh uh, Matt uh, Matt what was what's the capacity on that? Is that for can you do like full sheet goods on that? Is it more for smaller stock? Well, the the guys, the guy, the saw stop guy said that um, it's not really designed or intended to be a cross cut, uh, you know, slider for t- uh, plywood. Okay, but it can. People will do it. They know that, and it can handle it. But it's not really designed for heavy. I, I guess it's it's not intended for. Uh, you know, like a cabinet shop where they're just cutting plywood all day long. Okay. Tim uh, Tim Rousseau uses one of those in his shop, and he he loves it. He has a uh, he's got like a I think he's got a Powermatic, but um, he's got a nice little sliding attachment that just bolts onto the side of his saw, and it's um it's awesome. Yeah, this replaces the right hand wing of the of the table saw top, and uh, it was extre- it sl- slides extremely smoothly. Uh, the, the miter fence is very easy to adjust and use. Um, and it looks like it's really well made and I can't wait to get one on our saw stop at work and and give it a, give it a try. Cool. So Matt on this, um, this little sliding table, if you accidentally pinch your finger in it, does it like drop below the surface of the table (laughs) saw table and and self-destruct immediately? Yeah. Cool. They were doing hot dog tests with it, okay. you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but uh, here's something interesting I overheard about the hot dog test Ooh. Uh, that Salt Stop is known for. So I heard one of their salesmen telling someone that when you do the hot dog test, you actually have to hold the hot dog with your hand because the hot dog just becomes something that is uh, conducting your you know, whatever the electric field is in human beings that sets off the, the saw stop. Oh. If you, like, tape the hot dog down yes. and send it through the blade, it'll just cut the hot dog. Wow. So there will be thousands of people that. doing the hot dog tests in their home shops sending back their saw stops because they're terrified they're malfunctioning. I just found out <laughs> one, one of our, our longtime um, authors and contributing editors just – experienced the saw stop technology firsthand with one of their fingers. Who? Uh, Can we oh, say? No, who, or? who was that? Yeah, uh, Steve Latta was teaching at um, Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking Whoa. Uh, with Bob Van Dyke, and he had little pieces of stock. Uh, just like a lot of us, he was pushing it through, um, and there's a little bit of a kickback, and the piece of stock brought his, his leading hand back into the blade and it just nicked it he had wow. a he had a band-aid on his finger and that was it and he said you know bob van dyke who runs the school said literally you know without the sauce up technology it would have been a trip to the hospital wow he said it was yeah. just a band-aid so that's amazing well i'm glad steve's not hurt yeah um so you want to hear about some other things that i've seen not no really. not really <laughs> no okay <laughs> so what's right. uh, i heard there's some stuff from triton yeah, uh, I think everyone probably knows Triton from their uh, routers. Yep. Uh, I have a Triton router. Um, but Triton is now, they now own the distribution company for North America, their own distribution company. 
And they're going to introduce uh, pretty much all the tools that they have in Europe and elsewhere they're going to bring to the United States. So one of them is something they call the Work Center. Okay. And the Work Center is kind of like uh, it's a table base, and you can what they call different modules. You can drop these different modules in, and one of them will be a contractor saw module. So when that's in there, you have a contractor saw. One of them is a router table. So when you put that in there, you got a router table. And uh, it's fairly affordable, too. I mean, the basic uh, setup, I think, is I think that it was somewhere like five or six hundred dollars, I believe. Hmm. Um, and it would be a cool thing for someone who's got, you know, maybe a one car garage and doesn't uh, have space for a lot of big tools. You could have this and use it uh, as the basis for several different uh, pieces of machinery that you need. So, and, and they have some other really cool handheld stuff, like a, a cool track saw, um, a geared random orbit sander that uh, looks pretty pretty awesome. A geared and, random uh, orbit sander, what is that? Uh, so, it's got metallic gears, and, and one of the settings with those gears going, it has really rapid stock removal. Yeah, because that, um, as so it, it, it's just yes. Oh, as so as you apply pressure, unlike a, a normal random orbit sander, which will sort of bog down and stop random orbiting, the gears really drive it through its sanding motion, even with a lot of pressure. And that's something I know the the Fest tool has that option on their sanders as well. Yeah, Mike, yeah, that's, in the, it, that's exactly in, the right. uh, in the business when it stops random orbiting, uh, we call that orderly orbiting. That's the industry term uh, for that situation. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Ed. I appreciate it. You're that. welcome, Matt. Anytime. As, as if I hadn't heard enough bad jokes down here all week. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, what, what else? Anything for, like hand tooly going on down there? Yep, Lee Valley has some new stuff coming out that we are able to see. Um, they have a medium-sized router plane that is uh, already on their website. Okay. And... Uh, it uses the same blades as their large router plane, which is really cool. I didn't know that. So you can get just the body by itself and then use the blades that you already have. Because they sell, like, I think it's like eight or nine imperial blades for their big router plane. And there's like five metric blades. So um, that that was kind of cool. And they also have introduced, this is really, I like I like this, that they're doing this. They, you know, they make that shooting board plane. Yes. And one of the problems with that, not a problem, but one of the things, uh, quirks about a shooting board plane like that or the Lee Nielsen one where it's got that single handle in the back, it makes it really easy to push it, but it also kind of makes it almost like the front wants to tow out a little bit at times. Yeah. So Lee Valley has introduced these extruded aluminum tracks that their uh, shooting board plane fits into. And the track is coated with, uh, there's UHMW tape that goes on it. And so you get this, guide, it's like a guide, guide rail system for the shooting board uh, plane, and it slides really smoothly. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, and those, there's two of them. Like six, One of them is 16 inches long, and I think the other one is 24 inches long. And they're both under 50 bucks, between 40 and 50 bucks. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. Cool. So do you use um, those, do you attach those tracks to a, a uh, shooting board that you make, or is it all in one unit? You attach it to a shooting board that you make. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really nice, uh, and it's cool. Because I found, I've been testing theirs and the Lee Nielsen one in my shop, 
and I had to change my shooting board, put on a little adjustable guide rail uh, for those planes. Okay. Um, yeah, and they also have a really cool hatchet coming out, but that's, you know, it's, I don't know if that's quite woodworking related, but it's pretty awesome. Um, so that's, that's all cool news about new stuff. And then like, so you, you wrote a blog about this, about the show that's up online, uh, at finewoodworking.com slash blogs that your opening line said, you know, there's about IWF, uh, this year, there's good news and there's bad news. Good news is, you know, there's some cool new tools coming out, but there was a, there was a, a flip side to this coin. What was the flip side? Well, Tommy McDonald was only here for one day. Put him. And how is Tommy right, doing? No. I like Tommy. Uh, we only saw Tommy passing on the elevator, so we didn't really get to talk Oh, he was to in him, and out. But, uh, okay. Yeah, he was in and out. But anyways, I'm just joking. Uh, so, yeah, there, it, uh, for me, it's. I was here four years ago, and four years ago, they had three full halls of uh, manufacturers and vendors. And this time there was only, there was like one and three quarters. Wow. And yeah, there just wasn't in, and, and especially it, in terms of vendors and manufacturers that our readers, guys like you and me would be interested in, there was just very few of them. You know, Jet and Powermatic weren't here. Delta wasn't here. DeWalt, Milwaukee, Makita, all these, uh, the, you know, that the, the make tools for guys that are, you know, working in their shop, in their shop out back or in the garage, most of them are not here. And it is more like, uh, you know, companies that are into wood, that, that make machines for wood manufacturing. Yeah, like $300,000 edge banding machines. <laughs> I, I think that that stuff's too cheap. <laughs> yeah, probably. Thought, you know, like yeah. multi-million dollar pieces of machinery. Yeah. Uh, so, so that was kind of, uh, you know, there was still plenty of new stuff, and there's a lot of new stuff that we, didn't, we haven't even talked about. Like Freud has made a change to their fusion blades, and it's the, they're so quiet now hmm. and uh, leave a really nice cut. Uh, the, the, the fusion blade is a, like a 42-tooth combo blade. And, uh, What's it, it retail really for? Was, uh, the full kerf is like $99 and the thin kerf is $79. That's about what you'd expect for a good table saw blade in general. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get some of those in and we'll send them out to be tested. So we'll get to see how they do in, uh, real life performances, you know? So, and a lot, just pretty much everything we saw that was of interest to our readers will get in and have it tested and then we'll report on it in the magazine. Cool. All right, Matt. Yeah. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get back to it. We will uh, let you get. Or when are you coming home tomorrow? Yeah, I'm coming home tomorrow. I have to hurry up and get back and take a nap. All right, sweetie. We'll take a nap, and uh, I'll <laughs> check in on you tonight. Uh, I'll wish you good night. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. See you, Matt. I'll talk to you guys next week. See you, Matt. Bye. Bye. Okay. Well, that was incredibly awkward, and I'm sure... <laughs> I love making him feel awkward. Um, well, anyhow, so uh, let's move on to another question, shall yeah. we? We're not going to do any of our regular segments this week, because I wanted to get Matt in. Yeah. Um, Assuming we have any listeners after that call. Uh, <laughs> still hanging on. 
So uh, Chris writes in, I have a question for Matt. Now, I didn't want to ask this of Matt while he was on the phone because I wanted to kind of focus on IWF, but sure. I think we can ap- approach this. Um, I'm preparing to build Matt's mobile router table. Uh, this was from a video workshop series that uh, I had produced a while ago. And uh, Chris writes, for the top, I was considering using a sheet of phenolic plywood I have laying around. I figure it would give a nice slick surface for the table, but I'm worried it might not be durable because I've read that phenolic surfaces can scratch pretty easily. Do you have any input on using phenolic versus the laminate top you chose? Uh, so let's tackle this ourselves. So uh, I'll, I'll set the scene, Mike. Uh, Matt's router table top was MDF, which yes. he covered in, uh, you know, your typical like Formica laminate. Yep. Um, works great. It's nice and smooth. It's not um, absurdly sm- slick, mm-hmm. but it's smooth and it's durable. Um, phenolic. Give us the rundown. What's phenolic plywood? A lot of folks uh, don't know what that basically is. Basically, it's a high-quality, multi-layer plywood, which is impregnated with a resin um, to make it incredibly durable. Um, so it is basically a sealed surface, almost like it was laminated, but it's not. That It's actually sort of uh, fortified with a resin. Um, I think it's a great choice, and it it, it may scratch, um, but I think that's more of a cosmetic thing than it is uh, in terms of durability. I find it to be um, really, really durable. I think it's a great choice for something like that. I think it's perfect. The The knock against phenolic plywood is it tends to be incredibly expensive. expensive. So if you've got it, yeah, use it. It's Isn't it like stuff. a buck fifty for an eight by ten or for a four by eight uh, sheet rather? I don't know. Something Last time we, we ran the article, we you know found sources for it, and it was pretty expensive. I do think you can get it in smaller quali- quantities, like through like Woodcraft or something like that, yeah. maybe for a single project. Okay. Um, well, there you go. Uh, let's. We got another one. Here's from Dean. Um, hey, Dean. Dean posed an interesting um, question about PVA glue, uh, typical you know wood glue. He says several videos, articles, and blogs demonstrate the aggressive removal of PVA glue squeeze out. The implication is that it's damaging to blades. The assumption is abra- abrasion. I have found PVA adhesives to be corrosive to ferrous materials in the fluid state, but appear quite benign when cured. What? You are a good writer, Dean. Yeah, Dean's always thinking. I, I like the way he, he, he words his thoughts. He pieces his thoughts together. Why all the scraping and paring? I can understand removal of globs and drips so as to avoid disrupting the jointing or planing process, assuming machine operations. Uh, but then he goes on, tropical hardwoods are notoriously high in silica. From experience, white oak is hard on tool edges, and if not silica, has other abrasive components. Why is PVA any more abrasive or damaging to cutter head, uh, cutting edges? All my surfacing and sewing machines have carbide or stellite cutting surfaces, not the best for sharpness, but thoroughly abrasion resistant. I do not see PVA adhesive uh, as being any more damaging to cutting edges than aforementioned woods or even MDF. I'm sending my paint scraper to the utility bin. Knock off the high spots and send it through. Am I missing something here? Uh, Dean, I don't think you're missing anything. I'm, I'm kind of with you here. Um, I get rid of the glue on the surfaces of boards after glue-ups exactly for the same reason you're talking about, just to give me a good registration surface. Because a lot of times I'll flatten my boards, like for multi-board glue-ups, glue them up, um, knock down the glue after it's dry, and I'll just run it through the planer without jointing that mm-hmm. that glued-up face with the understanding that everything's pretty flat. It's pretty well-registered. It's flat enough to give me a good flat surface. Once it's plain, then I'll flip it and hit it again. So I'm, I'm right with you on that. Uh, I know 
folks with wide belt sanders are pretty religious about getting rid of any glue because a glue they don't want to clog up their it'll, yeah it'll, sanding belts. it'll clog up the sanding drum and and just you basically almost have to replace the thing so so what you're basically saying is that um those of us who how do we say this uh get our underpants in a twist over having to remove every drop of dry glue don't ever send your destroy your planer knives we're kind of overblowing it yeah i actually think it's counterproductive because if you have a glue up and this is really really common so you'll pull out your scraper and you're scraping the glue off the glue yeah. line a lot of times it'll come off really cleanly off one edge of the glue up mm -hmm. but that line will still show up on the other side mm -hmm. and that's because that board is, is just slightly inset from the other yeah. so if you work really hard to get glue off both sides of the joint what you're really doing is you're creating a trough right down that mm -hmm. glue line which you're either going to have to get rid of later through joining and planing or most likely with a hand plane, and it's just going to take a lot more work to do it. The other thing worth mentioning is, is if you do you know, like to remove your glue, uh, is, you know, so say you clamp something up, you, I don't know, glue up a tabletop, um, you know, let it sit for an hour and a half or so. The glue is set at that point, but the squeeze-out will be more in a gel-like state. Yes. It's a lot easier to get off and after, because once it dries, you try scraping that off, a lot of times it'll take up bits of wood with yeah, it. Yeah, especially woods like cherry um, yeah. or butternuts, some softer hardwoods, that glue, it'll just yank it right up. You're right. Um, okay, so there you go. Maybe a, a dash of myth in that old um, adage about uh, getting every bit of squeeze-out out. Um, here's another question um, from Sean that I have some insights into, and so do you, Mike, from another aspect. Uh, Sean writes, I have a basement workshop that I'm trying to upgrade and remodel and make a little more acclimatized. The shop is below a recent home addition, so I've been able to isolate the shop from the rest of the house to minimize dust and noise migration. Unfortunately, that means I don't have any heating or cooling in my shop. My question is regarding shop heating. Unfortunately, winter will be here before we know it. What are the pros and cons using a vent-free wall-mount gas heater to heat the shop in the wintertime? I have a gas line that runs through the shop, so the plumbing and the heater would be super easy, and I'm willing to give up some valuable wall space and trade for a little heat, but what other concerns should I worry about? So let me go first, because, well, Mike, you have heating in your uh, garage shop. Yes. I have a, but you have a garage shop. Yeah. I have a basement shop. Yes. So what are you doing in your shop? Nada. Uh, so we live in Connecticut, right? And yep. this past winter was one of those really brutal winters here. It got down to like five degrees or zero you know, I mean, it was cold as banana skins. And um, I actually have a run of baseboard, hydronic baseboard in my uh, basement shop. Oh, cool. And I didn't turn it on once. I mean, the basement's below grade. It's well insulated by all that soil. And it always stays at a constant of about around 60 degrees, whether it's winter or summer. So I've never, I've, I've been in the house through two summers now and one winter. And I have never, it's always around 60 degrees. Oh, cool. So I wonder if Sean has experienced a winter in his basement shop yet. You might not need anything You might all. not need anything. Um, if you do, Mike, what's your, what's your experience been? Well, um, if it's really well insulated and you need just a little bit of heat, I think that type of a heater uh, can work out pretty well. You know, something that isn't going to be running a long time. Um, my take uh, my understanding of unvented heaters, which is what this is, is anytime you're, you know, burning gas indoors and it's not being vented out, um, is that you can have a buildup of moisture. 
in the shop. Mm. So you might have humidity issues. Keep an eye on that. You might run a dehumidifier. dehumidifier. I, uh, I run one. To counter that. Um, yeah, in my shop, um, I've got a freestanding shop in my garage. And so I obviously need a lot of heat there. And I went with a direct vent a propane heater, which attaches to my wall. And the direct vent, what that means is the um, the combustion gas is is vented to the outside, which is fine. But in addition, it's a double wall um, vent, so that it actually draws air from the outside into the combustion chamber and then vents it back out. And it's slightly mm. less efficient because you're pulling cold air from the outside into the heating chamber. Yeah. So you're losing a little bit of efficiency. The good thing about that is that I'm not drawing sawdust vapors. I'm not pulling air oh, inside the shop in, into the combustion chamber and then out. So yeah. it's a it's really sort of a, a self... Um, it's it's fully, what do you call Self-contained. it? Self-contained. Thank you, Ed. Perfect. Um, yeah. Um, so obviously, make sure it's a heater, you know, rated for heating inside the house without a vent. But if you're going through your gas company or something like that, um, they should be able to set you straight. All right. So we got we got time for one more question. Um, or actually, this is more of a comment or observation, which I I found um, kind of interesting. I, I sort of agreed with the guy. Uh, this is Steve, and Steve wrote. I've noticed in my short amount of time as a woodworker that many woodworkers are obsessed with building and rebuilding their shops, workbenches, storage cabinets, jigs, tools, etc., to the point where I wonder if they spend more time on those things than they do actually building furniture. My favorite is when a woodworker claims they are improving, quote, shop efficiency, end quote. Most hobbyists make, what, one or two projects a year? Why do they need to be more efficient? They're not broil, for gosh sakes. It reminds me of a friend of mine that has thousands of dollars of photography equipment, but I've never seen a photograph. So here's my question. Do any of you have a jig you've built that you have never used? I challenge the hosts on the podcast to lead the charge in tipping the balance of time for your listeners to inspire more woodworking and less jigs. And man, oh man, was, um, was Steve's point about the guy who has the thousands of dollars in photo equipment but never photographs anything, like right on the money. Um, and I do think a lot of us sometimes get obsessed with, I don't know, like rebuilding our bench for the sixth time or, you know, making the fanciest jig with all sorts of expensive toggles and star knobs and T-track just to do the most, I don't know, mundane of tasks. But they're kind of fun to build. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> um, Steve, you bring up a really, really good point. And, it, and the point is sort of that you're getting to is the why. Like, why are we in our shops? And it's one thing where, um, yeah, you're an inspiring, you know, furniture maker or you're making a lot of stuff or you don't have a lot of time and you want to get stuff made. And really, you know, so that why of why I'm in the shop is because I want to make furniture um, as quickly, as efficiently as possible. But a lot of us, you know, we got long jobs sitting in front of computers or, or whatnot, and we're just in the shop to be in the shop. And, to, mm, and in that case... What's, what is the hurry? It's like if I have a choice between knocking out dovetails with an angle table saw blade and a bearing guided router bit to get rid of the waste and I can hit these a lot faster um, than I can doing it by hand, but I've got just a single drawer. It's a nice quiet time for me. Why not bust out the hand tools? Why save that extra 10 minutes it takes? Um, let's just, you know, let's kind of zen out, be in the moment. You You're know, totally, <laughs> totally agreeing with him. Absolutely. Yeah. Now there's a lot of times when it's like, okay, I've got like 10 drawers to take care of. Yeah. 
that Zen thing, it gets old real quick. It's like after about, you know, the first half drawer of the drawer, three. you know, I still got nine and a half left. It's like, where's my table saw blade? So uh, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm absolutely I'm, on both sides of the fence. Yeah. I'm, I was going to say I'm on both sides of the fence too. And that I completely understand what he's saying. There are, however, times when it's really fun to engineer. Like I, I one time, uh, I think the best example for me was I built a really nice uh, tanning jig. Yes. And it was fun building it. You know, it rides my Beesmeyer fence perfectly with no slop. It's got a nice toggle clamp to hold my work up. And it's got replaceable, uh, you know, little MDF inserts to yes. prevent tear out on the back end of the cut. And it's, it was kind of fun to build it. Um, once in a while, it's neat oh, to yeah. engineer those things. Well, that also speaks to the why of we're out there. A lot of us are sort of frustrated amateur engineers. And right. coming up with a great, efficient solution to any problem, I don't care if it's changing a tire yeah. or cutting a mortise and tenon joint, if you can engineer something that makes it more perfect, quicker, cleaner, and you get to use the cool star knobs, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty nice. So, no, I'm down with that as well. That's, Where do you come down on T-Track, Mike? Uh, I'm, I am a fan of T-Track. Oh, really? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> You know what I'm a real fan of? And th- I've actually used them for the very first time last week um, in a class. It's those Bessie um, hold-down clamps yeah. that are... The adjustable the ones? The adjustable, so no matter the thickness of the stock you're holding it down, it will like clamp it down to, yep. the, to the equal amount of pressure. They really work. Yeah, they're, they're pretty really sweet. They're really cool. They're too expensive. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to plan on buying any of them anytime soon, but... Awesome. That would have been my favorite tool of all time for the week because I've heard about them. It's like, yeah, that's a great idea. But then you use them. It's like, oh, this really works. This is a good thing. I really like, I think, I don't know if they're available through Woodcraft or Rockler, but Matt Kenny in his router table video workshop had these aluminum um, cam clamps that he used to lock down his router table fence Oh the yes. router table. Yes. And it's just like a threaded knob and there's yeah. a cam clamp. With the little it's handle. It's so the, cool. It's yeah. And you, you spin the hand. handle around and yes. then you flip it over and yeah. it, it cam locks into place. It's like the, the lock on your bicycle seat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. For yeah. adjusting the height of your bike seat. Yeah. They're awesome. Very cool. They're so cool and they're cheap. All right. Well, um, while we're at it, I have a, um, I have, I don't, it's not really a wood gloat. It's just, I want to share this experience because it just happened today. Okay. Um, I uh, had just was on my way home from dropping my son off for his first year in college. So, yeah, I know it was tough. Uh, no, I can't even think about it. Um, <laughs> the, the The bad part of that is he's going to school in uh, upstate New York. It's about a five and a half hour drive. So that was kind of sucky. The good thing is that this... and you came straight to do this <clears throat> podcast. By yes. the way, I might add. Thank you. But on the way home, slightly on the way home, about an hour south of where he's going to school. Across the Pennsylvania border is Erian Lumber Company, which uh, is a small lumber company that specializes in really, really nice lumber for furniture makers. And um, I've worked with them through mail order for years and years and years. Really great guys, good stuff. And I thought, wow, I need some lumber. I'm going to stop by Erian Lumber and see if I can pick something up. And I really just needed some flame birch, which... Um, I'm making a table out of, and there's nothing local, but I thought, oh, they've got it. And while I'm getting a piece of flame birch, I thought, you know, I really need some curly maple um, to finish out the project. 
Mike, you, aren't you supposed to be starting to pay tuition soon? Yeah, yeah let's not go there. No, this is a commission. So technically, this <laughs> okay, is going towards okay, that. Okay, um, and then while I was there, we've got a fine woodworking project coming up where I'm doing a double-wide dresser. And I thought, you know, getting some drawer fronts, um, side panels and back panels out of butternut. It'd be, they have a great stash of butternut. It'd be neat if I could get some good stock. So I kind of talked myself into the necessity of stopping by there. And it's basically you go from a highway to a smaller highway to a road to a smaller road to a dirt road. And then there's a mailbox that just has the word Erian on the mailbox. That's basically the sign for the lumber yard. Oh. You pull up. There's a various lumber sheds. I talked to Myron, uh, who I've spoken to on the phone over years. And he was nice, great. Knew exactly what I wanted. We kind of walked up the hill to these this this row of lumber sheds with these big sliding barn doors across the fronts, and he just kind of slides open this big door, and there, you know, all the wood is stacked horizontally with the ends of the logs facing uh, toward the front of the door, and there were all these basically flitch sets of sawn lumber, cool. and so it's basically, you know, what you need, Mike. Do you need a match set of butternut oh my boards? God. And I had dozens of match sets of boards to choose from. And here's the good news is I found one of the smallest sets um, still had about easily twice the amount of lumber I actually needed for the project. The good news, you couldn't break a set. You had to buy oh, the whole nice. So it's like, ah, oh, darn Ooh, it. too bad. Ooh, yeah, sorry, well, fine yeah, woodworking. I'm just going to have to buy all these boards. So, uh, um, so that was kind of cool. And they also had some awesome flame birch and, and maple as well. So um, a good time was had by all. Now, interestingly enough, your buddy Myron called here and asked <laughs> that the next time that you um, head over to Erian that you don't do this move, which apparently you did. You, Mike gets out of the, out of the van um, to start checking out all this lumber and, oops, drops a fine woodworking issue with it, where he happened to be on the cover. Like, oh, did I drop my oh, issue no. of Fine Woodworking Magazine? Ooh. <laughs> just kidding. Although no. I have heard that uh, Kelly Dutton, who's also been a big cover boy, just goes to Home Depot's and stands next to the issues that he's been on the cover of. Where even if it's just Sad. his hands on the cover, he'll stand oh, yeah. there. And his hands get recognized. Yeah. He's famous oh, for absolutely. his hands. <laughs> yeah, he does um, have very nice So George anyway, uh, Western Pennsylvania, uh, Erie and Lumber, check it out if you're ever out there. It's awesome. If you need to mail order a big batch of lumber, they do have a minimum. But if you're looking for really, really high-quality stuff, butternut, maple, um, walnut, mahogany, birch, uh, it's a good place to check out. All right. Well, uh, listen, guys, you know we get a lot of comments on our iTunes page. Here they are for this week from Turtle Cove Brewer. It has taken me a while to get acquainted with all of you, and I had to learn to develop a taste for snark, which truthfully I didn't care for at first. Now, I love and respect you all. The show is so successful that it has enticed me to part with hard-earned money and become an online subscriber. Love the features. What a treat. And from a guy who entered a screen handle that was basically just him moving his fingers randomly over the keyboard, because his screen handle is F-S-J-D-E-N-X-D-N-Y-S-B-S-H-V-S-H, he says, I laughed, I cried, and I learned a lot. Great podcast, very informative and enjoyable to listen to. And finally, Mike R. Pugue, only two words. Great show. Well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on September 5th. Oh, my God, September for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes. And by all means, click on that five-star rating. 
Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast on iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Yeah, I'm coming home tomorrow. I have to hurry up and get back and take a nap. All right, sweetie. We'll take a nap, and uh, I'll check in on you tonight. Uh, I'll wish you good night. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. See you, Matt. I'll talk to you next week. See you, Matt. Bye.